I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose. I'm the executive director at the Long Now Foundation. Uh, I wanted to tell you all a little bit about um, what's coming up at the Interval. Uh, so the Interval is the new space that Long Now just opened a month ago Sunday. And um, we are, uh, we've started a, a lecture series there as well. It's mostly, uh, it's always on Tuesday nights and uh, we've had about uh, six events now and all been sold out and really lovely. The next one is actually very long now related. Um, it's going to be about the Rosetta Project uh, and the future of languages and it's uh, co-presented with the Global Lives Project whom we've worked with before as well. So it'll be about endangered languages, the future of language, uh, and that's on July 22nd, I believe, which is a Tuesday. Um, and I think there are still a few tickets left for that. Um, also, we have become a really lovely co-working space. It's fairly quiet during the day. We have good Wi-Fi, so come on down. Um, and then the, the bar gets quite lively at night. Um, and for members, uh, I want you all, I know, how many of you are members here tonight? Look at that, nice. Almost all of you. Uh, thank you. Uh, so members get 10% off during the day. Just say you're a member. Uh, hopefully you'll have your card with you, your stainless steel card. And then Monday nights, uh, you get 10% off all evening as well. Uh, so please come on by and mention that you're a member. Hi, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. The uh, great thing about museums, we've had several speakers from museums, two from the Smithsonian, and part of the art of museums in the last couple decades has been they've learned to use the objects that they've collected and have all the lore on, and now they're telling stories with those objects. And uh, I suppose the best example of a book of that is Neil McGregor's History of the World in 100 Objects, which you can get in the lobby. Speaker tonight turned that upside down. Suppose you start with a story and then work out what the right object to put in the museum is. Please welcome Adrian Hahn. Thank you. So why write a history of the 21st century? Today's date is uh, July 16th, 2082. There's still 18 years until the end of the 21st century, and it may seem a little foolhardy for a mere human like me to try and analyze all the data we have at our disposal. After all, we're awash with information from every corner of the system, covering every second of the century. A thousand detailed histories of any subject you care about can be generated at the snap of a finger. But I believe that as our century comes to a close, we shouldn't just look at the big picture, we should also look at the small details, the scale on which human lives are lived, because this has been an extraordinary chapter, an extraordinary century in the story of humanity. Every century is extraordinary, of course. Some 
may be the bloodiest, some may encapsulate important revolutions in science or religion or philosophy. The 21st century is a little different. It rep represents the first time in our history where we've had to truly question what it means to be human. It's not just a theoretical concern, it's a pressing, practical concern. And so that's what I want to share with you tonight. Out of the hundred objects that I've detailed in this history, I've chosen six stories which I think represent some of the best and some of the worst that humanity has accomplished this century, spanning war, science, artificial intelligence, and inequality. So, the first object I'd like to start with is from 2019, the locked simulation interrogation. Hostile virtual reality simulations have to rank among some of the worst nightmares we've invented in this century. Today we have strict laws about the uh, use of locked sims, laws that are baked into hardware and that are enforced by severe punishments. Locked sims have very few legitimate uses anymore, other than specialized therapy, but unfortunately they do have plenty of illegitimate uses with interrogation being the most prominent. The first use of uh, locked simulation interrogations uh, dates back to 2019. Following a series of five bombings in North Carolina, FBI agents detained a subject who they think aided the terrorists. This suspect was not responsive to the legal interrogation techniques of the time and with physical techniques such as waterboarding prohibited by Congress in 2018, the FBI decided to test out a new experimental procedure. So the suspect was fitted with a set of virtual reality goggles along with a galvanic vestibular stimulator to artificially alter their sense of balance. This system was powered by the FBI's computing cloud to provide a highly immersive and highly responsive simulated environment. However, the FBI also added uh, another thing to the mix because what I've described is a setup that any rich person at the time could afford. They also added a portable brain scanner to this setup, which means that they could closely monitor the subject's reaction to a simulation of their supposed meeting with the bombers. Any strong emotional reaction to a phrase or a place or a uh, face would make the next iteration of the simulation focus and elaborate on those specific elements. Uncooperative behavior was swiftly punished by fear-inducing simulations, which themselves were refined based on the subject's uh, brain scans. And so they were able to narrow in on the truth, so to speak, of what actually happened during those encounters. And so over the course of eight-minute simulations, 572 of them, the FBI determined the likely locations and identities for three of the bombers. Ultimately, this information allowed them to prevent a Plan 6 bombing in Charlotte. In a much-publicized press conference, 
Following the arrests, the FBI credited the new supposed non-invasive zero-contact questioning techniques with saving thousands of lives. As a result, it wasn't surprising that security services all around the world, all around the country, were given carte blanche to use adaptive VR interrogation. Of course, they didn't realize that the system wasn't quite as reliable as it was made out to be. It turned out that the North Carolina case was more of a happy accident than anything else. Too often in adaptive VR simulations, the users just generated nonsense information. Still, over the next 15 years, adaptive VR interrogation became a standard part of law enforcement agencies' toolkits. At first, it was used just to investigate major terrorist threats, but as often happens with these things, the technology became easier and cheaper to use and ended up trickling down to more minor criminal cases. The successes were publicized and the failures were quickly covered up, resulting in an almost perfect public image. But the severe and the permanent psychological damage caused by some adaptive VR interrogations also became clear over those 15 years. Even with the best will in the world, many security services were not able to prevent innocent suspects from being mentally scarred by days of locked sim interrogations. Many suspects developed a lifelong aversion to the people and the places that they encountered in these simulations, tearing apart friendships and families. Ultimately, there were three flaws with adaptive VR interrogation. The first was that the crude brain-scanning technology of the time was just not very good. It often placed far too much weight on subjects' emotional responses to completely irrelevant people or places in the simulations. Secondly, as the Mossad and other security services demonstrated on numerous occasions, trained agents could withstand hundreds of simulations by conjuring up vivid and consistent internal mental worlds. Thirdly and finally, adaptive VR interrogation was only as good as the people and the data that were linked to it. In other words, there was always human error. Thankfully, the use of adaptive VR interrogation was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in 2033 a violation of the Eighth Amendment against the use of cruel and unusual punishments. It was a landmark case defining the use of brain-scanning technologies for law enforcement, but it was not the last. And that brings me on to the second object, which is really more about an event, a movement, than a specific object. So this is from 2034. The greatest of packages can come in the smallest. Uh, can, the greatest of changes can come in the smallest of packages. And this package is one of millions manufactured by the Christian consummation movement. And this is really no larger than my thumb. Inside, you'd see a little tiny eyedropper and 18 pills. And if I use these eyedrops, and I swallowed the pills, and I enrolled in their perfectly harmless induction course of targeted viruses and transcranial magnetic stimulation, which I can assure you I am not going to do, then over the next few months, my personality and my temperament would be gradually transformed. 
my aggressive tendencies would be lowered. I'd readily form strong, trusting friendships with the people I met during this imprinting period, which invariably would be other members of the CCM. And also, according to the CCM, I'd become more empathetic, more generous, less desiring of fleeting individual mundane pleasures. Some might say, if they didn't like me, that this would be an improvement on my personality, that I'd become more serene and less vulnerable to temptation. Others would say that my individuality had been eroded by an insidious form of desire modification. But everyone would probably agree that I'd actually changed. So from the 30s, the 2030s, the 2070s, over 20 million Americans joined the Christian consummation movement. And while its explosion and growth has slowed down considerably in recent decades, the CCM's rise to become one of the largest denominations of American Christianity represented a dramatic period of religious revival, a fourth great awakening. But if we want to understand the origins of the consummation movement, we need to look at the society in which it grew. By the early 2030s, mass automation and globalization had permanently raised the US unemployment rate to more than 25%, with underemployment more than doubling that number. Some US states had introduced enhanced social security and a basic minimum income. And that had taken the financial sting for some people, out of this economic shift. But money alone couldn't replace the sense of meaning or direction that many people had once derived from work, and nor could it address the fragmentation of thousands of physical communities based around work. The co-founder of the Christian consummation movement, Dr. Sarah Alderman, she aimed to fill that gap Dr. Alderman was a talented neuroscientist from Oxford, and in 2029, her team put together a number of previously unrelated therapies, including hormonal and ceremonial imprinting techniques, memory enhancement, the so-called cure-for-hate gene therapy treatment, and old-fashioned conditioning. And the result was CCM's induction course, a course that was extremely reliable and actually very safe. Simply undertaking the induction course didn't guarantee that an individual would actually consummate, so the CCM set up precisely targeted real-world social networks to provide essential human support during the imprinting period. And they learned from, from the best back during the rise of Christianity 2,000 years ago in the apostolic age. Christianity first spread through hundreds and thousands of small tight gatherings, and the CCM copied that model and accelerated it by multiple orders of magnitude with the help of network technologies. Early on, Dr. Alderman identified echo boomers, millennials, as being particularly receptive to the CCM. These echo boomers, born during the 80s to the 2000s, had a relentless belief in self-improvement. To the echo boomers, the CCM offered self-improvement that actually worked. And even better, it required zero effort or risk. 
Uh, many people during the 30s and 40s already took cognitive enhancers, so there didn't seem anything particularly bad or anything wrong with this induction course. In fact, it seemed much better because it held out the promise of not just making you think faster or improving your memory, but actually leading you into joining a real community with noble goals, which is what they all wanted. And so here's a uh, blog post from Dr. Alderman who wrote about why people join the CCM. She wrote, we all want the same things. We want to help our friends and family, to love and be loved, to leave the world a better place. We want to be content, and, well, we want to be happy and prosperous. Is that really too much to ask for? But it's hard. It's really hard. You pray every day and every night, but it can be mighty tough to stick to the right path. It's a never-ending struggle against temptation and against the darker demons of the soul. Some use meds or enhancers or games to help them. I don't object to that. I think that's just fine. But it'll only work for a while. Those demons and those temptations will come back because all you're doing is putting a band-aid on the problem. You're treating the symptoms, not the cure. What if we could silence those demons, though? What if we could use our God-given knowledge and intelligence and tools to improve ourselves? That's what he would want of us, and that's what we're doing here at the CCM. Now, I bet a lot of you played that Odyssey game that came out last summer. There's a part in it where you, Odysseus, have to tie yourself to a mast so you wouldn't be drawn towards those enchanting evil sirens. When you did that, you didn't think that you were cheating, did you? You were being smart, because you were confronting an evil that you couldn't avoid and you couldn't defeat on your own. It's just the same with the CCM. When we complete our course, when we consummate our lifelong journey our souls have made towards Christ, we truly make ourselves into better people, better able to help and love one another and to love God. You only need to look at the members of our church to see the truth of what I'm saying. But you might have to look hard because they're not proud people. They're humble. But every day, through their efforts, through their hard work, they're helping the needy. They're rebuilding America. They're strengthening communities. And they're making the world a better place. Not everyone believed what Dr. Alderman had to say. Other religious leaders, of course, denounce the CCM as a cult and its induction course as brainwashing. We know about many, many people who embarked on the course without having provided fully informed consent, a problem quite characteristic of some other 21st social networks. <laughs> but there was an even more serious objection. If you remove the threat of temptation and the desire from human experience, can one still be virtuous? What does that even mean? Can one still be considered to be human at all? In reality, though, the CCM's course of brain chemistry alteration was not so powerful as to remove all temptation from your life 
but merely to shift them along a more virtuous point within the human spectrum. Taking the course did not make one a saint, although you could say it made it easier to become one, whether you liked it or not. <laughs> so, we're going to move a little higher for the third object. It's a bit bigger. Alto Firenze from 2039. Alto Firenze was one of the architectural jewels of the 2030s. I'm sure you all know about it. The space station represented the flowering of space habitat design, and such was its influence on the way in which we live and work in space that we now talk about pre- and post-AF periods. The fact that Alto Firenze remains largely intact to this day is another minor miracle, one that sought to become a sole heritage site in the 2070s. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Alto Firenze was conceived in the late 2020s as a space habitat for 100 people. But unlike other space hotels, the station was designed to take a step beyond the utilitarian style of the late 20th century. No ugly white boxes and greebles were welcome here. Instead, the station incorporated a level of elegance and fashion that saw fittings and module fabrication directed by experienced architects and engineers. The Alto Consortium began construction in 2032, taking advantage of a glut of cheap launch capacity produced by fierce competition between SpaceX and Siemens Foxconn. Six inflated, inflatable modules form the core of the station, heavily modified from BA3704 plans. Each module had a pressurized volume of 3,700 cubic meters and was capable of housing 25 people, not only in comfort, but also in style. It was furnished with lounges, sleeping pods, bathrooms, observation areas, and dedicated dining areas with dedicated chefs designed by the noted Group of Five. By the time the main assembly was completed four years later, though, Alto Firenze's original business plan, which saw it become a combination hotel and luxury resort, had become slightly outdated. There were a lot of hotels in construction at that time, uh, 14 by this point, with another 20 under construction. And so the business plan was looking a little bit shaky. So the consortium decided to change things around a little bit, keep two modules as a hotel for tourists, convert three modules into a conference center, and use the final module as a first orbital art gallery and museum. Two members of the group of five shuttled up to the station to personally oversee the installation of their spectacular orrery chandelier in the museum, along with the detailed fractal layering that enveloped the rest of the station. While the consortium's decision struck people as being dangerously optimistic about the state of the world economy, it's worth bearing in mind that the semi-permanent orbital population had now reached 5,000 by that point and was growing rapidly. Alto Firenze defied its critics. It flourished as a popular meeting place, hosting exhibitions and zero-G artworks and conferences into the late 30s and early 2040s. Its success as a general-purpose high-end station drew plenty of imitators, the edX campuses, 
the famous Heinlein and Robinson distributed venture complexes were all assembled in the late 2040s along similar lines to Alto Forense. But everything passes. The station, which had its heyday in 2030s and 2040s, began to slip from fashion. In the late 40s, larger, more advanced, more architecturally adventurous habitats were being constructed, some from captured asteroids, others from lunar ejecta. Even a complete refurbishment couldn't save it. Finally, in 2051, Alto Forense was purchased by the Reynolds Mining Corporation for use as a headquarters and boosted to an L5 orbit in 2052, mere months before the cascade. As such, Alto Forense is the only surviving example of early 21st century low orbit habitats, the rest having been destroyed, deorbited, or broken up for salvage. Today, the station has been preserved as a museum and returned to its original low-Earth orbit. Floating through the opulence of the Alto Forense station almost feels like stepping back in time to the high frontier. This was back when the hypercapitalist summer turned into autumn, and the first shoots of what was to come next were budding all over the world and off it. I want to do something different for this next object. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a book called The Downvoted by Richard Cameron, which was published in 2045. When I first met Eric, both he and I were effectively homeless. One day, after we'd received our guaranteed income for that month, Eric took me out for lunch at a cheap bistro by Clapham Common in London. I was surprised by his generosity until I realized that he was using me as cover. Once again, he'd managed to get himself downvoted on enough trust networks he was being refused service. This time, even the menus wouldn't actually work for him. His personal hygiene was hardly perfect, but I'd seen and smelt worse. His clothes weren't particularly old or dirty, and while he often had a surly attitude, I'd never actually seen it cause any serious fights. All of this is to say that I couldn't really point to any specific reason for why he was being downvoted by passers-by. It was a combination of his overall demeanor and personality that put people off. Understandably, Eric was frustrated by his predicament. He became grumpier and more antisocial, which only earned him more downvotes. Like others, I felt sympathetic towards his plight, but I was wary of being seen with him too much for fear of receiving downvotes by association. <laughs> they don't see you, he used to tell me. You're completely invisible. I don't know whether it was better or worse before these awful contact lenses when people pretended you just didn't exist. Now I'm told that there are ways for people who will literally put you out of their sight so I've become this muddy shadow drifting along the pavement. And you know what? People will still downvote the shadow. <laughs> the first time it happens, you become angry. Angry at the world. Who appointed them judge and jury? What gives them the right to reach a verdict just like that in a second? But what happens over and over 
you just become sad and despair of ever being seen by anyone again. Eric usually didn't like talking about this. Instead, he preferred to use the power of his downvoted aura to magically push crowds of pedestrians around the pavement. <laughs> but today he seemed particularly upset. A liberal person today, on hearing the word discrimination, will naturally think of sexism or racism, or these days, centism, all of which have their devils and their champions. They will not think of the low-level, murky discrimination that the downvoted experience, even though technically it's equally illegal. They will assume that these problems ought to be impossible thanks to our right to see and to remove any personally identifying information held on us by corporations. And in theory, that's true. But on the other hand, our society also holds sacrosanct the individual's right to use private or privately shared data to alter their personal environmental virtual reality. This exception has meant that thousands of private, semi-legal peer-to-peer downvote sharing networks have sprung up in every city around the world, collectively identifying millions of undesirables. Stamp out one network, and another will appear within hours or minutes. The only thing good about it, told Eric to me, joking, is that no one is allowed to make a profit. It's all very cooperative. <laughs> Providing that we weren't out in public, I enjoyed Eric's company. Before a drug overdose and a botched gene therapy treatment left him in the hospital for a year, Eric had been a talented lawyer. After he recovered, he found that he couldn't concentrate anymore. He bounced from job to job, eventually ended up in the pit of the basic minimum income where he stayed ever since. It could be worse, he told me. We could be living in San Francisco. <laughs> I went on holiday there once for a record of achievement project working at the Howie Lighthouse. The cleanest streets I've ever seen, and that wasn't with any human sweepers either. They've got state-sponsored downvoting there, citizen crowdsourcing of antisocial individuals. The law got passed by a supermajority because it's the ultimate magic wand, a way to identify all the creepy people and criminals forever. And I'll be honest with you, he said, the voting is usually right. Sometimes the feedback to the downvoters is useful, sometimes it's good to know. But, and he sighed heavily at this, sometimes it's not so easy to change yourself. It becomes a spiral. It's almost like being exiled without having traveled anywhere. Besides Eric, the Streatham Solidarity Center housed a few other downvoted. Most of them had discovered that their invisibility gave them not just the means, but also the motive to commit petty crimes. If society has decided in the most dismissive and also the most personal way possible that you're worthless, then why not play along and really justify those downvotes? Occasionally, they would make sport of it, seeing who could get the most downvotes in a day. They use a funny old word for it, gamification, I think it was. <laughs> the last time I saw Eric, he told me, when I asked him about some possible solutions, he said he wasn't for ma wearing a mask or a veil. They're pointless. Your walk, your smell, the way you 
step across the pavement, they'll all give you away. And when they find out you're hiding, they'll get even more scared, and you end up with even more downvotes. I can move away, I suppose. Maybe the London networks don't stretch as far as Scotland. But it would be a shame, because I grew up here. The micromort detector, Buenos Aires, 2032. Every second of every day, we're confronted with choices that test our appetite for risk. Should you eat, should you eat that tasty but fattening donut? Should you walk to the shops or take the car? Do you really want to take that space dive? It'll be fun, but it might actually be the trip of a lifetime. Sometimes it's easier for us to uh, make that calculation, especially of high-risk activities that have a very known probability of death. But most of the time, though, we make decisions unconsciously, even though the cumulative impact of all those decisions have more weight on us living to an old age than any single space dive. But what if you could measure and quantify those decisions immediately and directly? What if you could have a number that could tell you exactly how risky an action was going to be? And that's what Mutual Assurance, a co-op based in Buenos Aires, set out to make with their Lifeline bracelet in 2032. So this bracelet is a little old-fashioned. It just tracks the usual things, blood pressure, oxygenation level, heart rate, metabolic panel levels, galvanic skin response, and so on. It also hooks into the wearer's glasses or lenses to determine, more or less, what the user is doing and how risky it is. And all of this health data and behavior data is then combined into a single number, the micromort. Now, the micromort, it's a real thing. It was invented in the 19th and 18th, uh, 20th century. It's a unit of risk representing a one in a million chance of death. Drinking a couple of glasses of wine would accumulate a single micromort, whereas spending an hour canoeing would accumulate 10 micromorts. Taking a bite of burger might give me 0.05 micromorts. In theory, a lifeline would detect the entire sum of its wearer's activities. Every wash of their hands, every flight, every run, every drink, every kiss, every human function, and calculate their associated risks in real time. Mutual Assurance's aim was to help individuals, help their customers make more informed choices about the risks they took in everyday life, and of course, to better assess insurance premiums and make more money. <laughs> so initially, they had planned to make the bracelets available solely to their own customers, but the tremendous hubbub and PR and marketing generated tremendous demand and encouraged them to ramp up production. And no doubt much of the appeal came from its novelty value, plenty of people enjoyed taking a drink of coffee and seeing their micromort count gradually ratchet up. But a great deal of interest came from how it played upon the fears of the aging baby boomers and Gen Xers of the time. It didn't escape the notice of the CEO. There was an entire generation that were very anxious about their mortality, and they thought that they could address and perhaps profit off that by quantifying it in a way that the users would understand. But the lifeline, of course, didn't alleviate anxiety. 
accentuated it. Many wearers obsessively checked their micro-mort readings every hour, every minute, worrying over statistically insignificant increases and becoming paralyzed with indecision. Sadly, their heightened anxiety usually increased their blood pressure and cortisol levels, <laughs> further increasing their micro-morts for the day, which increased stress, and so on. But there are other problems with the lifeline. One was the inaccuracy of the risk data it relied on to make its calculations. Most of the data had been calculated on a population aggregate level basis, and so its applicability to specific individuals or circumstances was quite limited. Another problem was the inconvenient tendency for some humans to be contrary. Some users deliberately tried to increase their micromorts as much as possible without actually harming their health, regularly embarking on risky ventures and sports activities just to get a high score. A few years on and the attitudes had shifted, people were tiring of such simplified measures of their lives. The fashion of trying to precisely quantify everything in the universe from health and happiness to intelligence and inspiration had its roots in the turn of the century, which was back when the politics and the economics of the time rewarded people for thinking in strictly numerical terms. Believe it or not, back then they really did think that representing things like happiness with a number out of a hundred was not just a good idea, but the best idea. <laughs> the ideals of the self-quantification and the gamification movements reached as far as the 2030s, and then thankfully retreated as the modern romantic movement emerged. Ultimately, the lifeline was never particularly accurate nor useful as a tool for managing risk or improving health, but it did succeed, however, in inspiring a, a new range of mostly ridiculous but occasionally thought-provoking knockoff products that purported to measure tiny incremental amounts of change, such as a micro-fund detector, the micro-smarts detector, the micro-morals detector, and so on. And so that's perhaps the most useful thing that the Lifeline did. Those trying to use its simple metrics to guide their behavior were frequently stymied, but that very effort and that very failure often prompted a fleeting understanding of mortality and created more subtle and long-lasting changes in outlook. It wasn't a magical device that made people wiser. It was more like a memento mori. Before I begin the final story, I wanted to say a few words about the 94 objects that I won't cover tonight, if this is going to play along with me. That's a problem with this old technology. <laughs> um, so some of the 94 objects, like Babel and silent messaging, the Nautilus 3 and the brain bubble, which you saw at the start, they addressed how humanity became more connected with one another during the 21st century, both physically and culturally. But there were others, of course, that saw humanity fracturing away from each other, fragmenting into thousands of communities, like the Fourth Great Awakening and the biomes. In the 21st century, we automated our economy. The UCS deliver bots with the mimic scripts 
the negotiation agents, destroying the entire notion of work and employment. These words don't really have much meaning today. And we transformed our politics with the constitutional blueprints. Not satisfied with the trifling productivity gains of cognitive enhancers and smart drugs and glyphish, we transformed ourselves even further and even faster with amplified teams, the lace, javelins, and the posthumans, all demonstrating how Homo sapiens became something very different and not always in the way that we intended. And with our newfound abilities, we left our mark on streets and buildings and oceans and mountains all over Earth and on the moon and on Mars, on a thousand asteroids all over the system and even further beyond. We did what humans do. We transformed the world around us. And what will surely be our most memorable feat, we created new forms of life. The future remains as murky as it has ever been, but we can be certain of one thing, the next century, the 22nd century, it won't be ours. It'll be that of our creations, and only if they understand our achievements and our tragedies in this most swift of centuries can we hope that they will improve the next. And it's on that note that I want to tell you the final story of tonight, something that has just happened, the Armstrong Expedition. So... 82,432,334 extrasolar planets have been discovered in more than 22 systems, 22 million systems in our galaxy. Most of them are completely unremarkable. 0.3% of those planets, which is 2.8 million planets, lie within the habitable zone of their planets, of their stars neither too hot nor too cold to sustain life. Of these, 71,349 are classified as highly habitable, with stable orbits, moderate seasons, and suitable mass. And the study of these planets has consumed a great deal of attention. Several methods exist to determine whether conventional life life like us, is present on a planet. One is to look for short-lived biomarkers like oxygen, ozone, methane, and nitrous oxide. Water is also desirable, but it's not a guarantee of life. Now, because the light spectrum of a planet betrays the presence of biomarkers, they're quite easy to detect. And we have found 589 planets with at least two biomarkers to date. Other strong signs of life include oceans, continents, seasonal changes in biomarker intensity and changes on the planet's surface. The most direct way to find these changes and find these planets is by taking a picture of them. This requires a rather large instrument comprising at least 100 network starshade telescopes spread over 1,000 kilometers. In 2075, there were 95 such instruments in use. And 52 of the most promising extrasolar planets have been imaged to a high resolution, 24 of which show clear evidence of phytoplankton-like organisms in the ocean. 
A further nine appear to harbor plant-like organisms spreading across their continents, waxing and waning with the seasons. The first discovery of alien life was widely celebrated by humanity when it happened. That is, when ancient organisms were found in our own solar system on Mars in 2028. Further celebrations occurred 20 years later when extant life was discovered on Europa. By the time extrasolar life was first imaged in 2055, celebrations were considerably smaller. The wonder and excitement of life in the universe being eroded by the slow drip of discoveries. By then, everyone had just assumed that life was out there everywhere. The planet with the most advanced ecosystem, GRO 19b, is a mere 328 light years away, making it close enough to be imaged in real time by the Newton Array of Arrays. At our current level of technology, there are hard limits on image resolution, but experts believe that the planet is home to intelligent life. And at least judging by the settlement-like shapes on its land masses, we think they're right. And that's where we are now. I spoke to a researcher recently from the Tsinghua Chorus, Bernard Kwok-Kung, about the extrasolar project recently. A few weeks ago, he was visiting the Cassini Starshade Array to discuss that summer's observations from Newton. And then during a break in the conference, he told me there was some talk of sending a human crewed ship to grow 19B. But of course, it doesn't take someone smart to work out that there's just no way you can push a human-rated biome, even a tiny one, to the kinds of relativistic speeds that would let humans get there in any reasonable amount of time. Artificial intelligence substrates, though, they have some real advantages when it comes to travel. As far as I could tell, the scientists I talked to about this project had the look of someone who'd finally accepted some long-expected bad news because the planet was due to enter a rapid phase of civilizational development in the next few millennia. The pattern of settlements, the distribution of resources on the planet, the lack of any obvious killer asteroids, it was a perfect condition for growth. Plenty of people there would love to meet them and talk to them, maybe, but it's not a trip that any humans would be capable of taking. So a few weeks later, I went back to the Starshade to advise on the newly arrived Armstrong expedition. Nanoscale fabricators were swarming over the improbably small and complex Lighthugger spacecraft constructed on the same lines as the Shenghai and the Ericsson, two starships sent out last year to different extrasolar planets. An antimatter fuel source had already been delivered from the inner system along with a new post-human designed saddle point propulsion unit. Soon a thick layer of ice would be sprayed on to protect its precious AI cargo from the rigors of relativistic impacts. It would be another three months before the light hugger would set off, but it was already attracting quite a crowd of curious onlookers, both digital and physical. One group was pressing for its religious text to be inscribed on the ice covering. 
A delegation from Brooklyn were hard at work composing some classical hip-hop music to be played on the ship's arrival. But there was something different about this expedition, a genuine first contact, another step towards becoming something greater. Except for this step, humanity wouldn't be present. No one alive would be there. Some commentators about the uh, trip have spoken about the idea of the great filter, about how odd it is that we haven't detected any signals for intelligent life from the universe, from our galaxy, that something must be stopping intelligent life from spreading. It's been a real mystery for some time. But here and now, it's plain to anyone smart enough to see that anyone who has a wit and the resources and the means to spread replicators across the galaxy and keep them there for a million or billion years, continuously broadcasting a signal. They just understand the total futility of the effort. Or the AIs I know would just get bored too quickly. But they seem interested enough in this expedition, which is good news for everyone. On Earth, on Mars, on Titan, on Europa, in 10,000 biomes around the system, humanity continued talking, living, creating, loving, and crying. Some of them knew about the Armstrong expedition, and perhaps a few felt a little twinge of envy that it would go to a place they never could. But even though we cannot, our creations, our children, they can. And in this century, I think that's something that we can all be proud of. Thank you. Can I sit over there? This is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> I've been around futurists for 30 years. And uh, the first thing I'm, I'm really delighted by here is that the uh, easiest way to think about the future is dystopia, because it simplifies everything. You can tell a simple story. You went to see Snowpiercer the other night, and it's you know, just another. There's a few people left dealing with what's left of, of civilization's failure. And, and on the other hand, you got the usual transhumanist uh, singularity story where everything just gets insanely better and then uh, disappears on the other side of some kind of event horizon and there's, it's better out there, but we can't see it. <laughs> and both of those are a kind of a giving up, I think, about civilizational continuity. And what we get from these museums and from the histories looking backward is uh, at each, often at, at the times in history, people had those kinds of opinions that, that, that there was a, uh, a golden age that was happening and everything would become absolutely perfect and, or that everything was falling apart and everything was collapsing. So in a way, what you're doing with the future is what looking backward tells us is actually the right way to think about the future. I'm curious what your sequence of coming to undertaking this exercise was? Where did you begin and how did you wind up where you did? Well, I, I grew up on a diet of um, you know, golden age science fiction, the ones that sort of talked about how the world was going to be so glorious, so Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov and how 
men, usually it was men, unfortunately, uh, of great intelligence and rationality would transform the world and make it a better place. And so that kind of is what led me into studying neuroscience and, and uh, creating a games company and, and doing the things that I did. And um, luckily, uh, I was around when we, my dad would bring back computers and like a lot of people, we, we uh, had an internet, we had internet access just when I was like nine or 10. And mm. so I was kind of let to sort of roam free, um, talking to all sorts of strange people. And, um, and, and that just wouldn't happen now, which is a shame. And because they didn't know how old I was, they assumed I was an adult. I was like, you know, 11 or 12 or 13. Oh, and so I was able to have these great conversations with, with people. And I remember I had this, uh, I got into this huge argument with someone who thought that Noah's Ark, you know, was actually real. And we had this great conversation about, well, how many animals could you fit in there and how much food would be needed? And we kind of did these calculations. And I said, yeah, but wouldn't, you know, obviously, wouldn't they all eat each other? Mm. And, and he said, oh, yeah, but like before Noah's Ark, uh, every animal could eat plants. I said, okay, fair enough, but I, I don't think we can really have this conversation anymore. And that was, just a, that was just a kind of a good point. I think it was like 13 or 14 where I realized, well, there's a point where we can't really talk about this. But it also meant that I didn't get into the habit of kind of making fun of people who you know, had religious beliefs. And so kind of as I grew older, even though I had kind of funneled into science, into kind of computers and programming, I started sort of trying to backfill my gaps in my knowledge about history and about mm. arts and about humanity. And so that's kind of why this future is inflected with the idea of what's happened in the last thousand, ten thousand years. So did you read the, the uh, history of the world in 100 objects and did that become the inspiration for this exercise? That, that was a direct inspiration for this. I mean, if you haven't, if you haven't read it, you, you really should. It's this fantastic book. Well, say a little more. I mean, what, what got you? Um, well, I, I thought it was really odd to do a radio show about objects. Um, you know, I thought it would be better if they, if you could the, the see The book them. was originally a radio show, so <laughs> all he can do is wave his hands and say yeah. there's this uh, Australian hand axe and it's about as big as your hand. Is, is yeah. That... Um, but it was just, it was just amazing because, you know, normally, I don't know what it's like in America, but normally when we're taught history in the UK, it's just done so quickly. You know, you've got, we stopped the Egyptians, then you've got the Romans, then you've got Henry VIII, then you've got uh, the Civil War, then you've got World War II, lots of stuff about Hitler, and then history ends. Uh, there's nothing else. There's not really any objects or anything. I remember looking through my history book and thinking, but there's stuff about China here, and there's stuff about, are we gonna cover this? And we didn't. And so this, this book, this radio show, you know, they, they tried to go as wide as possible. And after it finished, I remember mm -hmm. thinking, I really want to find out what happens next. You know, they got up to 2011. And I thought, can't, you know, so what, what's the next object going to be? I mean, and of course, this being the British Museum and the BBC, they didn't, you know, they, that's not their kind mm -hmm. of style. But... Um, but I, I thought this would be a fantastic project, and so I, I started a Kickstarter, which back then was kind of very 
um, cool and trendy. Uh, and How far back then are we talking? Oh, about? that was like <laughs> that was three years ago, uh, or, or, four, or four years ago. Um, and uh, and and like all you know, Kickstarters, it was you know abjectly late uh, in in delivering, but it was. Because it was just a lot harder. I mean, it, it, it was a lot harder to write than I had expected. Was this... The, putting together these stories, was it you alone with your imagination? Or given Kickstarter kind of the crowdsourcing of the funding, did you do any crowdsourcing of the thinking? You know, I didn't want to share the fun, so, so I, just did it, I just did it myself. But, you know, I think that a lot of the objects... Did you put chunks of it out along the way to sort of see what people did with it? I did, uh -huh. I did, yeah. When, I, when I'd written about 30 of them, I started mm. putting some of them online just to see whether people found it interesting or not. Um, and I really wanted to try and, you know, have it cover as wide an area of subjects as possible because, you know, you talked about how, you know, the visions of the future are usually just dystopia or utopia. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought, look, in the future, we're still going to have fashion we're still going to have religion, we're still going to have cars, and yes, we'll have rocket ships and so on. And all of these things are just as interesting as you know, what kind of iPhone we'll have. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, it's a lot harder to write about because you know, I'm, uh, I'm not an expert in most things. Well, this is interesting because the thing I got from when I started paying attention to history is um, read a bunch of history, and in a sense, it felt the same thing. Well, if I could stop. But... Uh, you want to go out and make some. And this book has, the history of the world and a hundred objects, has this other funny thing of, not only do you want to go to sort of go out and make some history that'll be make worthy objects that the, uh, can be written about that way, but it made you become that kind of historian, only flipped into the future. So a question from Diane Tate is, tell us about your methodology how much of your stories sort of came out from research and how much is just your imagination going batshit? You know, mo most of these objects, a lot of them, you know, if you, if you read the internet a lot and you read blogs and, a lot, you know, the idea of a starship is not, not new. The idea of design modification to some people is, is not new. Did your neuro research <laughs> and knowledge lead into some of this? I guess it did with the first one that you showed. Yeah, it did. Um, I mean, you know, my, my neuroscience knowledge is about 10 years out of date now, which is very sad. But what really, what, what I do understand about neuroscience is just how incredibly quickly it's changing. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I wanted to highlight the, you know, the capabilities you know, we are going to be able to do some very unusual things to our mm -hmm. brains in the next 20 or 30 years. And I don't think people even realize, even, you know, even what we read in the press, even what we see in movies is probably an underestimate of what's possible. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, but with the, with the kind of obvious things, the, the obvious objects that, that you know, have been talked about before, what I wanted to do was do a different kind of spin and look at how, just look at the idea of contingency. So with the, you know, we're all very excited about you know, Oculus virtual reality headsets and we think it's going to be great for games and it's going to be great for tourism and it's going to be great for all sorts of things. And I'm very much looking forward to playing around with virtual reality. But of course, like any other tool, it can be used for terrible things and not just torture or interrogation, but brainwashing. And mm -hmm. why, why wouldn't people do that? 
we should just be thinking about that. Are you the first to link up VR, Oculus type VR, with uh, brain scanning in real time to get some kind of uh, feedback capability that sounds pretty amazing? I, I would love to say that. I suspect it's, you know, now that I've been reading around the subject, I think that pretty much everyone's already had the idea before. But I think that maybe using it for law enforcement is perhaps a bit, a bit unusual. Um, two questions about uh, the objects, and uh, Kevin Kelly asks, which of your objects do you personally desire most? And uh, Cameo Wood asks, which objects gave you the most pleasure to explore and explain? They may be different. But yeah. Um, you know, I had a lot of fun. And you can mention ones that you didn't talk about today. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a lot of fun with, with the ones that I'm a bit more uh, familiar with, um, like the micromort detector, just because mm -hmm. it, it's a sort of thing that... You're familiar with the micromort detector? <laughs> it's just a sort of thing that I can imagine someone making and, you know, putting it on Kickstarter or whatever. I can imagine and, Kevin Kelly being one of the first <laughs> customers for it. Um, <laughs> in a way that it, it's something that, you know, would be fun to use but probably wouldn't work. At, but but that's still fascinating to look at um, because of these, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think about failed technology just as much as successful technology. Mm -hmm. um, also, what the other question was, I can't remember what the other question was. It was the one that I wanted to have most. Once you had the most fun of yeah. figuring out and once you personally really want to have. The other one that I really want to have, and this says a lot about me, sadly, in a bad way, is um, there's this, I, have, I, I think one of the big things that we're seeing at the moment is just this idea of information overload and of, of filters. And um, you know, I, I want to read more books. Uh, it's not, I don't have a problem with finding good books. They're not expensive, but I just, you know, I read books on my iPad because it's more convenient. And you know, because it's connected to the internet, I'm just getting all these notifications flying up and it's super distracting. And uh, I could turn them off, but you know, there might be something really important happening. So, <laughs> so I, I had this idea, and, you know, because people always say, oh, I love going on planes, I love going on train rides, because I get so much reading done. But now there's internet everywhere and we can't read anywhere anymore. So I had this idea of um, these kind of specialized reading rooms. And of course, this is, you know, you have them in libraries, you have them in, in you know, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, you have them in monasteries, but the idea is this would be something that you could go to and there would be different levels. At level one, you, you know, you'd turn your, you'd put your device into airplane mode. And level two, you'd sort of, you know, you don't, you don't have any other, you kind of, the hardware is locked to reading. And level three, you'd actually be in a separate physical room with a time lock and a Faraday cage, so there's really no cheating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can't, you can only like get out every hour, so it's obviously inspired by, by Neil Stevenson and Anathem. And, and, and it just kind of seems like, well, I mean, isn't that really pathetic that you need that in order to read a book? But I, I think, I mean, we know that we want to read more books. I want to read more books. I know it's good for me. Anybody here want to read more books than you read on? Okay, so fix that problem. Yeah. And, and, and that's kind of, and that's also informed just by some of the, I mean, you know, we make this game, my company makes this game called Zombies Run, and it, and it helps people run faster by... How many here have used Zombies Run? 
<laughs> it's pretty that's motivating. And so, so there's like a million people who, who run around, you know, away from zombies. And um, the idea there is we want, you know, the people, everyone kind of knows, all of our players know that they want to get fitter, but they find it hard to motivate themselves to do that. And so, you know, I like the idea of making tools act in the user's best interest hmm. um, and that helps them. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have a lot of very powerful tools being developed that do help people, but they also help the corporations that, that build them. Mm -hmm. and, and we are increasingly seeing uh, people understand belatedly that, that, that the interests may not be congruent, except there are no alternatives. I mean, you know, some of these things are natural, seem to be monopolies or natural monopolies like Facebook and so on. And so that's, that's a big project that I'm kind of interested in. But, you know, zombies is a very small part of that. Um, a couple of questions about sort of the scenarios in your mind as you're doing these objects. One uh, from Michael M. How detailed are the scenarios behind these objects? For instance, is there more you can tell us about the group of five who are associated with Alta Forensi? You know, a lot of these things come from... from uh, I, I mean, my idea for that was that... You know, I, I come from a game, you know, at the moment I'm in a gaming background and I've noticed that some of the most interesting games are being created by a generation of grown-up who are multidisciplinary and not just from skills they picked up later in life, but they are designer, developer, writer, programmers. And the idea behind the group of five was that you would have these, these engineers who were kind of artists, computer designers, you know, space habitat designers, and that they, uh, that's what they do, and they sort of approach it from a different direction. Um, I couldn't tell you their names, but like I, I, you know, that that was, and that it would be a kind of tight circle, rather than the individual designer. Mm -hmm. So that leads to Kevin Kelly's question: Are your hundred objects part of sort of a unified scenario in your mind of this uh, of the century so far being one story that makes sense? These little pieces of. Yes, it, it is meant to be uh, 100 objects from the same unified world, which um, made it a little difficult, to be honest. Yeah, which came first for you then? So are you sort of generating the world and then sub-stories within it, or are the sub-stories starting to cohere in a world that has coherence? Uh, I mean, when I started it, because I have very little confidence in my ability to actually predict the future. I, I mean, there are some things that we can look at and we have, Good. A, <laughs> we have, a, we have a higher degree of confidence in, like climate change, uh, like uh, demographic trends, um, like changes in the power of technology and that sort of thing. And so I can probably say, well, look, you know, according to the best projections we have, there can be more people up into a point and then hopefully population be leveling off, we know that climate change is going to happen, you know, we know that these different technologies are going to be spreading out across the world, and when that happens, things are going to get, things are going to change very quickly, and when things change very quickly, what kind of conflicts and what kind of pressures will be generated, and then thinking about objects mm -hmm. for, that, would, that would represent those changes and represent people in that world. Is this an accelerating world that you were 
you were seeing, I mean, everybody talks about tech acceleration, and it's there, it's there in biotech, it's obviously there in computer tech, and people have been saying, yeah, but human nature does not change that rapidly, so it, is some of this kind of the collisions between those paces of change between human nature and the tech? Exactly, I, I think that, I mean, we're still, you know, we're, we're not Star Trek humans, you know, we're not, you know, we, we still have emotions, you know, we still, are very irrational, but I, I think that the rapid pace of change, not necessarily of technology, but just of the tools. I mean, even if you froze... Well, what's the difference between technology and tools? Well, <laughs> um, I mean, I guess to, to sort of be more specific about that, I think even if you didn't invent any more, any faster computers or any faster internet connections or any different phones, we'd still be creating different kinds of applications. Um, so if, if you froze hardware, the sorts of software and the sorts of um, software tools, I guess, or products that we'd have would still continue. You know, it's moving, the hardware is moving so fast, it's hard for people to come up with applications that really even use even half of what our phones are capable of. Hmm. And so, you know, every day there's some new app, every day there's some new game, every day you can press a button and empty out your bank account to someone halfway across the world. You know, and that's a good thing and that's a bad thing. You know, I, I have a, one of the objects which talks about um, delegated buying power, um, where you, you know, most people probably don't care too much, you know, what, exactly what brand of toothpaste or, or you know, washing up powder they use. Um, <clears throat> so the idea would be that you might delegate your, your buying power, your choices to a trusted third party that could then exert political or economic pressure on you know, corporations or governments or banks. And so you suddenly have the, the threat of bank runs that don't just happen within a day, but they happen within a second because <laughs> you've delegated that this power. That would never happen. <laughs> to Flash crashes. Yeah. So, so that's something that, that I kind of see accelerating, I guess. Scanning, I mean, you must have scanned sort of all of the 100 objects and figuring out which ones you wanted to talk about in some depth tonight. Um, what are some of the other ones that you took seriously and then uh, decided not to do just because you couldn't go on in life? But, you know, we've got a little more time. Uh, tell us another object or two. Uh, <laughs> um, there was one object that I wanted to talk about um, the, I mean, the first object, the first object was, it, it was from, was one of the hardest ones to do because it had to be um, totally believable, mm -hmm. but not completely boring. And, and so this was um, the ankle surveillance monitors, and we already have, you know, ankle monitors for you know for criminals and you know for it's people. For prisoners. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and the and the idea was that because of the exploding prison population, you know, this is something that that is just costing the U.S. in particular just a massive amount of money. And mm -hmm. so perhaps we can all save some money by going and, and letting people go outside and, and using these ankle monitors. Uh, but the idea of this was that they would not just be streaming, you know, GPS data. They'd also be streaming audio data with microphones because that would be even better for mm -hmm. making sure they're not up to anything bad. And, and they would also be streaming the location of the criminals to uh, 
public, certain types of third parties like schools and police officers and health officers. And so it, it was this kind of extreme example of, well, you know, to what extent are you going to be prepared to sacrifice your liberty for safety? So that was the first object. So it's sort of an enforced transparency, quantified itself where anybody can read the quants. Uh, so just to see that the prisoner is behaving. Yeah. That, that, well, what do, you, what do you call somebody who's not a prisoner anymore? They're at loose, but they're still part of the prison system? Uh, I think probation or that, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, other objects. Uh, there it sounds great, by the way, because you know, <laughs> uh, a lot of the harm that prisons cause is that you're in there with nothing but other criminals. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the tricky thing is, like, I, I've, I've been sort of trying to put, <laughs> you know, after you've kind of written the book and, and it goes into production, you kind of forget that you actually wrote it. So, 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 so I'm going to go and look up <laughs> some of the objects. Um, this is terrible. Uh, but, but, um, but yeah, uh, another object that, because halfway through I was writing the book, um, I started out doing it in, that, in, in a very kind of similar style to Neil McGregor's mm -hmm. book, you know, as a kind of like very dry, very professional historian writing about the past. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I realized that I couldn't, it didn't actually work for a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do because when he goes and says, well, this is a, an instance of the first spear thrower, right, and this amplified people's throwing power, like, he knows that people know what an arm is, people know what a spear is, and people know what a thrower is. But if I go and start talking about something from 2060, mm. you know, with some weird name, and we don't know what it is, I have to go through this whole kind of data-dumping procedure about, mm. as you know, in 2050, blah, 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 happened. And, and no historian would actually do that. Like, yeah. if you're writing for a contemporary audience, there are certain things that you know people are aware of. Mm -hmm. And so... Kind of halfway through, I, I changed it so that it would be more, it would include more found materials, mm -hmm. like letters, like brochures, mm. like questionnaires, like adverts and things like that. And that was just a lot more interesting to, to write about, although also it kind of, I mean, the, the problem was that it also um, sort of made it a bit more disjointed. So... Oh yeah, one of the one of the one of the objects that I really enjoyed writing about was um, was negotiation agents, so and and also mimic scripts. Um, the idea behind mimic scripts is, uh, you know, I, I my company used to do a lot of work for like advertising agencies and and things, and they would always want you on countless conference calls and and video conferencing calls, and I'd be like sitting there and I'd be you know doing some other useful work in another window and, and they'd be kind of watching me and I'd just be like, yep, and I'm listening, I'm listening to what's going on. And, you know, because most of the time there's like 50 people, 15 people on these conference calls and I'm just, I'm not interested in what's going on. I just need to say yes at the right time and I can just like, <laughs> and I thought, well, really, um, can't we like pass this, you know, can't we use uh, voice recognition and, and sort of run this through something and just do some very, very simple things. Like when someone says, hey, Adrian, what do you think about that? It would just like ping me or go and say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Right? And, and it would, because, <laughs> because, you know, this would just be a great labor-saving thing. And, you know, maybe at the start, it would just notify me when I need to go and say something. It would go flash up, like, here's what was just said for context. And, and you know, you might want to say this back. But as it got better... 
as I got better, it could just do it for me. Um, and, and I could just go and do my own thing. Right, you use it for a while, gradually realize it's right. so good, you can leave the room. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, and so you, you know, what happens when you have like, multiple people using these things? And they're it all just... doing it, right. Nobody's in the room. Exactly. So, so that was kind of the... the I mean, they're making decisions. Yeah. It, and, 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 and so, because like, there's so much value placed on your, your, you know, your presence uh, within, within these meetings. But like I, I mean, that was kind of a fun one to write. Although I, I kind of more seriously looked at, you know, there are some, you know, some people who are kind of more on the sort of autistic spectrum, you know, where, or, or you know, have difficulty kind of reading social cues. And I thought, well, you know, could it be possible that that we mm. could have things that might be able to, you know, read emotions and might mm. be able to say, look, this person is upset. Here's something you might want to go and say, mm -hmm. and so uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, and and so I thought, that, you know, there are really useful things, and I think there are. I'm pretty sure someone, probably like at MIT Media Lab, they're always doing that sort of thing. Probably is like making glasses that will go and you know detect people's emotions and and will you know try and provide support. And it could, you know, it doesn't need to be an AI or some script doing that. It could be just another person. You could mm -hmm. have another person kind of riding along with you, you know, looking through your eyes and, and just kind of telling you what to do. Ooh, that's, ooh. <laughs> a guide in your Google Glass is yeah. watching, seeing the same thing you're seeing and telling what's really going on. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Uh, <laughs> tell about the javelin. Yeah, so the javelin is, um, this was a story about uh, what the Olympics will look like in 2048. Um, so we had the Olympics recently in 2012 in London, and it was very exciting and, and uh, in the UK, and, and it's very nice to see that a lot of people are taking the Paralympics very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was a lot of talk back then about, you know, should Oscar Pistorius be, be allowed to participate in the 100 meters sprint for you know, in the Olympics, not mm -hmm. in the Paralympics, because he had these carbon fiber blades, and was it fair mm -hmm. that, that, you know, he'd be allowed to kind of use these, because maybe they were kind of biomechanically more efficient than actual running, and it turned out maybe not, but, um, and he didn't qualify anyway, so it wasn't a problem, but it, it made me think, well, look, you know, the, the sort of enhancements, like the prosthetic enhancements that, that are being invented and developed now are getting extremely advanced, to the point where I think it would probably be very safe to say within the next 10 or 20 years we, we can have Paralympic athletes who will be able to outrun or outjump or outcompete you know, any normal human competitor. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, will we be seeing better, rec you know, sort of more impressive records being set in the Paralympics? And will that you know, a lot of that development, a lot of that research will probably come from uh, you know, technology companies and from medical companies who are very keen mm -hmm. to show off the capabilities of their new legs or their new, you know, suits and so on. And, uh, you know, will the Paralympics turn into Formula One, basically? <laughs> you know? And, like, is that... I mean, do we want that? I, I don't know. Um, it, it's exciting, but it's also very dangerous, uh, you know, are you pushing people to do things that, that 
you know, are very unsafe, of course. You know, we have a lot of sports that are extremely dangerous, and we're perfectly happy, you know, as long as people understand the risks. We had some of this with America's Cup here recently. Yes. You know, which was pushing the tech completely, and then we had a death. Yeah. Because they were pushing it over the edges, it turned out, but that's how you find out where the edge is. You're saying that the, these personal sports could have that direction. So what's the javelin about? Well, the javelin is about, the, the object there is about the fact that um, in the 2048 Olympics, a really unusual thing happens where a human javelin throw actually managed to outthrow uh, uh, one uh, of the... Just an ordinary human. An ordinary human, human. Baseline human manages baseline, to... We're all baseline humans. Yeah. Uh, manages to outthrow... Um, the world record from, from Paralympians. And so people are just, just so amazed about this because at that point, the attitudes have flipped over. You know, we used to be very kind of condescending to, uh, to Paralympians before. It's like, oh, you know, such triumph of human spirit. You know, they try, they try so hard. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think in the future, you know, it will be, oh, look at these baseline humans. You know, they don't have... You know, augmentations, they don't, you know, they try so hard. Isn't it like impressive, like how fast they can run? And so, and of course, in the next Olympics, it's just, it's all over, and his record is d demolished by, by someone who has just even more powerful, you know, arms, basically. So, once again, it's the story of John Henry uh, <laughs> against the steam hammer and is beat by John Henry, John Henry behind the scene, who made the steam hammer, and on it goes. Well, it's going to be a great century. You made me look forward to it. Thanks <laughs> Thank a lot. You. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.